Today we're going to be learning about what Jesus says about coming judgment and what he says about past judgment. It's what I'm calling Apocalypse Then. So if you want to learn about Apocalypse Then from Jesus, you can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke, and we'll be in the 21st chapter. So Luke 21 this morning is where we will be. Hopefully you can find Luke 21. Maybe you're new to this whole studying the Bible kind of thing. You can find... Uh, index in the front of the Bible that maybe we gave you this morning. You can find a Bible on your phone. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. And as you're finding that, maybe I'll say how confused I was today about time. You're supposed to be confused today about time, right? Because it's spring forward. Um, I thought church started at 10. So in Sunday school class, and then I'm rudely saying, I got to go. Sorry, we got to leave. And the next thing you know, it's like church starts at 10.15. Duh. Um, my clock says it's a quarter till 10, so I could preach for a long time. Um, this is like this total state of confusion. Um, I can't blame it on jet lag anymore. We've been home for, for a week. Um, the last time I tried to preach a sermon, it wasn't really much of a sermon, but I was on a bus. Uh, we, we didn't have time to do the church service we were going to do, our little service, because of complications in the travel route. So I was trying to preach a sermon from the front of the bus, um, looking out the front with a microphone from driving from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem. And uh, anyway, wasn't much of a sermon, but I at least read the text. Everyone in Israel says hello, by the way. Um, <laughs> we had a great time. Um, Lord willing, we'll keep doing it every few years or so. And anybody who wants to eventually go can go. I'm super thankful. See, I've got kids raising their hands. I tell my kids, if God gives me enough birthdays and somehow provides, I want to take each of you there. So I'll probably be like 97 and a half by the time you go, buddy, but hopefully you can make it. <laughs> the New Jerusalem will be way better anyway, is what I always like to tell people. So um, anyway, enough of that. Luke 21 is, is what I'm going to call Apocalypse Then for this reason. Obviously borrowing from the movie title Apocalypse Now. Uh, but Apocalypse Then because uh, when we're looking back at what Jesus says, he's talking about the apocalypse, the, the, the judgment from God on Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. So we're talking about histor history in the past. Apocalypse Then, 70 AD. But Jesus also, kind of a double meaning here, Jesus also looks, gives, uses that as an opportunity to look forward to his second coming. Uh, and so for us, that's apocalypse then, it's still in the future. And so he's going to cover both of those. He's going to talk about the immediate destruction that's going to come in 70 AD. Uh, and he's going to use that as a type, as an illustration, uh, as a preview of the ultimate apocalypse when he returns and brings judgment upon the earth. So it's all about the future from when it was written, but from our perspective, half is about the past and half is about the future, if that makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, hopefully it will in just a little while. Okay, let's jump right in. We're going to cover the whole chapter, Gospel of Jesus according to Luke, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich. So here he is at the temple, next to the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem, he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. 
for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. If we only stop there, we could say, in principle, the moral of the story is you give out of your poverty, not out of your abundance. And would that be true? That would be true. That would be good. We could say she's the, dev- the devout one. Who's the hero of the story? It's the widow. She's really sacrificing. The rich people aren't really sacrificing. It's just a token. All of that would be true. And if we were talking about giving this morning, then I think I would be willing to go to that passage and say there's, there's a principle to be learned there. Giving should be sacrificial, and it surely was sacrificial for her. Having said that, in our context, it seems to be there's something greater. This is a catalyst for something greater. And God didn't call people to give 100%. Okay? Yes, of themselves. This is a great act of devotion. But we've got to see more to it according to context. Widows were just talked about in our context. Look with me, if you would, back in chapter 20 at the end there. In chapter 20, verse 46, Jesus says, Beware of the scribes. Beware of the, the, the official religious leaders of Israel. That's pretty shocking who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Notice it says in verse 47, who devour widows' houses. He was talking about widows. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive a greater condemnation. So I think he's carrying on that idea. The the widows are the ones who, who should be taken care of. But instead, things have gotten so perverted and so upside down with the leaders of Israel, you know, the nation of God, these are, this is the right religion, they've gotten so perverted and so twisted and so backward, the very ones they're supposed to help, they're stealing from, they're putting pressure on them to, 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 to build great things and to make things more beautiful and, and, and they're robbing them by doing these things, doing it in the name of God, you know? And if you really want to be spiritual, th- these, are, these are classic hucksters. And, and Jesus is making a radical point, I think, when he talks about she's the one who's honorable here, not you who look honorable, not you who, who are actually manipulating those. And this is like a spark that ignites Jesus and he starts talking about condemnation upon Israel for being that kind of nation, for being those kinds of people in the name of God of all things. So with that in mind, notice what it says in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones, and it was, and offerings, and it was. He said, Jesus said, look what it says in verse 6. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Not a big shocker to us in middle America 21st century. But it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to, to think, what would that have sounded like? This is so radical for Jesus to say this. Rocking radical. This amazing, extraordinary building. This temple. Magnificent opulent structure is going to be 
absolutely destroyed, annihilated. It's radical because of how great it was, how awesome it was. If you need a little review of history, you have Solomon building a temple, and that temple is destroyed. And then Herod comes along, and he's a politician, wanting the people to like him, wanting stability, and he rebuilds the temple, and he rebuilds the temple, and it takes like 80 years to build the temple, the whole structure, the whole system. He makes it practically twice as big. I mean, I mean, Herod was, was a megalomaniac and built these amazing, awesome things, not for the glory of God, but he knew how to build. And he makes this awesome, magnificent temple extraordinary temple. And so it's radical for Jesus to say, not a single stone is going to remain because of how awesome it was. It's also radical because of the theological significance of the temple, the social significance of the temple, the religious significance of the temple. I mean, think about it. The temple, as it's otherwise known in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is the house of God. It's not the house of the gods of the nations. It's the house of Yahweh, the house of God. It's where you go to meet with God. It's where you go to to have reconciliation with God. It's where you go for sacrifices, right? It's where you go for atonement. It's where you go so you can have a mediator through the priest. I mean, it, it is where it's at on planet earth. And so for Jesus to say it's all going to come crashing down is absolutely Amazing. So why would he say it? The the widow's statement gives us a taste. The gospel narrative leading up to this helps us to see. You know the answer. He would say this because things had become so perverse, so corrupt. And the ultimate expression of perversity and corruption and bankruptcy, and apostasy, and every other kind of bad thing you can think of that I can't think of, just using synonyms. The ultimate expression is for Jesus of Nazareth to come on the scene, to come on the scene, then officially affirmed from heaven, behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. For Him to come as the Lamb of God, who what? takes away the sin of the world. He's the ultimate lamb, okay? To do away with all the other lambs. In, in essence, to, to see him as the ultimate temple. Remember in John chapter 2, he, he, he refers to himself as, as the temple. The ultimate backwardness, the ultimate perversity, the ultimate upside-downness, backwardness is going to be Jesus comes, the ultimate fulfillment. The temple was the type. Jesus is the anti-type. You want to use other ways if those terms don't make sense? Jesus, uh, the temple is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. The the, the temple is is the picture. Jesus is the reality. It was all designed to aim toward, to prepare, to get ready so that one day the Lamb would come. And He's come and they've said, among other things, He's the devil. Even the fact that they're going to have to, in their minds, keep the temple going just shows how terrible it is. That's why Jesus says, There's going to come a time 
when not even a single stone will be standing. That's not the mean Jesus. That's not the selfish Jesus. That's not the unreasonable Jesus. That's the absolutely, perfectly logical Jesus. Because it was all designed according to the God who plans, like we read in Isaiah 25 today, to point to Him. And it doesn't. For them. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, and chapter 10, verse 1, Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, just putting those kinds of verses together helps me to say, Types and shadows came, but the substance belongs to Christ. And they didn't get it, which is huge, hugely terrible. Okay, verse 7 then. Here come the questions. And they asked him, teacher, when, first question, when will these things be? Second question, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? When is this going to happen and, 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 and what will the sign be? Now, please make sure you notice, it's worthy of noticing, they don't say, Jesus, have you lost your mind? The disciples have their moments, right? We all have our moments. This is, not, this is a good moment. They're, they're tracking well enough, at least by now, and seeing Jesus for who He is, at least well enough by now, at this point to say, when's it going to be? And how are we going to know? It's not, have you lost your mind? This is to be perpetual. Uh, no, even the Old Testament talks about a new covenant, which would make the old obsolete. I mean, this isn't a new religion, as in, let's just come up with something totally new. This is where it was going, and you know what? We're going to come up with this new thing and redirect it and sort of like hijack Judaism. No. Old Testament clearly talks about the doing away with the old and the coming of the new. This is it. This is on track. Jesus isn't out of line if he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist, the prophet, said. The substitute, as he's been saying. Now, just a couple of things to keep in mind before we go any further. Please remember as we read who the audience is. Because if you're like me, you're going to start reading it as if you're the audience. Remember original audience first. Original audience it would be the disciples. They're living then and there with him. Okay? doesn't mean there aren't principles for us to learn, but let's remember he's talking to the disciples. If you do that, it'll help you to see the, the 70 AD connection. It'll help you to see that the temple's going to be destroyed. Okay? And it's going to happen, and they're going to witness these things. So, so before you jump to the future for us, and think of second coming, don't go there yet. Think of the disciples, and how it's going to be for them. Okay? This is future for them, but this is going to happen in 70 AD. And then he's going to start talking beyond that. Also, perhaps uh, know this. 
Old Testament prophecy, first of all, is a tough nut to crack sometimes, okay? You, you know it is because if you read like Isaiah 9, 6, the Christmas passage, and you read the context and you go, what? And you start realizing a lot of this prophetic stuff has to do with, with what theologians sometimes call near and far fulfillment. There, there, there's some sort of application to the, the, to the present then and there historically, but it's viewed, viewing toward a, a greater fulfillment, you know, like an ultimate David, an ultimate Messiah. But there have been many Messiahs. You have to kind of keep that in mind because a lot of times when the, the way the Old Testament works in prophetic matters, and no doubt they learn how to do it in the New Testament from the Old, there's near and far. Um, it's not a perfect illustration, but I have, I have glasses on that are different on the top and the bottom. So I see things differently on the top than I do the bottom. It's just a different kind of perspective. One thing that might help you in thinking about how prophecy works in the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, is thinking about mountains and foothills. So, for example, when you're driving to Colorado and you're getting closer and closer, uh, you look for the mountains and you can see them off in the distance. And when you see them, uh, if you're like us and our family, we have a contest out of it. Who can see the mountains first sort of thing? And uh, people argue whether or not they're actually the mountains or it's the clouds. But then you get there and you realize because of perspective that the foothills are not in the same place as the mountains. There's actually distance between the two. Even though it didn't look like it originally, it becomes clear to you that there's a distance. They're separated. And that's sort of how biblical prophecy works some of the time, again, in both the Old and New Testament, but we, we learn it from the Old. What appears to be at the same time is actually separated by distance. And it's important that you keep that in mind because apart from keeping that in mind, this passage won't make a lot of sense. Put it more positively, it will make way more sense if you understand that what Jesus talks about happening in 70 AD or what will happen in 70 AD, what's close like the foothills, uh, looks forward and onward to the mountains, which will be the ultimate, which will be his second coming judgment. And so primarily, as we look at this passage, remember, he is primarily and firstly talking about the destruction of the temple, the judgment of God at the hands, in the hands of the Romans upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70 with a view toward, now we're thinking about mountains, with a view toward his ultimate judgment when he comes again. One more thing I should say before we actually get to the next verse, verse 8, is I should say, just to let you know, that my perspective in reading these verses and preaching this sermon and seeing uh, the near and far fulfillment and seeing the foothills and the mountains uh, is, is basically a common view, a common perspective. So people who have different end times views generally would see this passage as the same. They'd be on the same uh, page, 70 AD and then ultimate second coming. So just so you're aware of that, this is pretty common regardless of your, your end times view. Okay, now let's go and let's see verse 8. It says, and he said, see that you, remember you disciples, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So Jesus wants to get his disciples ready, and he says, many are going to do this, 
But don't go after them. Don't follow them and don't believe them that this is the time. Now imagine what it's going to be like for these disciples. Imagine Jesus is crucified. And if Jesus is crucified and he's the Messiah, you're going to have people, even well-meaning people, even believers saying, you know what's going to happen next? You killed the Lord of glory. It's going to be lights out for you. And it's going to happen. Maybe they're going to be a little too zealous, like Christians are sometimes. It's going to happen now. Thus saith the Lord. Temple wiped out. And then nothing happens. Okay? Jesus says, be, don't, be more discerning than that. Okay? It's going to happen, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. Okay? Even though people are going to come in my name and say it's going to happen. And in one sense, they're right. It should happen. But don't be deceived. Don't be misled by those guys. Verse 9 says, And when you, the disciples, hear of wars and tumults or uproars, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Wars and all the stuff. Uh, maybe he would say to Peter, in other words, Peter, don't drink your cup of coffee, don't have your cup of coffee in one hand, taking a little liberty here. Don't, don't wake up and have your coffee in one hand and the Jerusalem Post in the other. Okay? Don't interpret the Bible with a newspaper, okay? Or you're going to be one of these future snoopers who are naming the date, saying it's going to happen. Don't be that guy. Those things are going to happen, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to come back or, or judgment's going to come right then, interestingly enough. You know what I was doing there, just a little bit of liberty. Okay, verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. That sounds like Isaiah 5, Isaiah 13, all these Old Testament kind of prophetic kinds of uh, images being used here, sometimes used of immediate events, sometimes used of future events. Verse 12 says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, so it's religious and civil authorities, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity. Wow, perspective check. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Witness is the word marturion, where we get martyr. You'll be a martyr. You'll be a witness for me. So you see what Jesus is doing. I'm going to be gone Things are going to be bad. But it's okay. See straight. Be discerning. Know that it will be opportunity for you to bear witness. To speak of me. To speak of the crucified, resurrected one. Don't freak out. Don't lose your moorings. Don't lose your bearings. Okay? Ultimately, you have one message, and it's not the Jesus is coming right now message. Don't listen to those guys. It's going to happen, or judgment's going to come, yes. But you are to bear witness of me. Now, we know from the book of Acts, we have Stephen persecuted greatly. We have James. We have Peter persecuted. We have Paul persecuted. I mean, all this stuff is going to happen, but, but they're, they're not changing their message. They're, they're being witnesses. They're being gospel witnesses. 
Jesus is equipping them to be able to do that. Verse 14 says, settle it therefore in your minds. Again, don't, don't get off track from, from job number one. Settle in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and, and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Again, he's talking about being a gospel witness, a gospel martyr. It'll be okay. You'll know what to say as it would pertain to that. Verse 16, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all. All kinds of unbelievers that would be. It doesn't mean they're going to be hated by Christians. You'll be hated by all, by all kinds for my name's sake. Maybe we'll pause there just for a moment and, and just realize this, this would be terrible and good. It's going to go badly for you. But you're going to be my witnesses. And I'm the resurrected one. And you guys, they will all believe in the resurrection. The one who has the power over the grave in time. Stick to the script. Don't get off track. Stick to the gospel script. God will provide. He's equipping them. In verse 18 it says, But not a hair of your head will perish. That's a proverbial saying. It's a saying that Jesus has used on other occasions to talk about the sovereignty of God. Nothing can touch you apart from God's sovereign plan. Okay? It's a proverbial saying in that sense. We know, according to context, what Jesus doesn't mean is nothing bad will happen to you. Take it out of context, you might make it mean that. We know he doesn't mean that because verse 16 said, you might die. But he's using that proverbial saying, not not a hair on your head can get touched. It's it's like he was saying on other occasions, it's because God God has them all numbered. God cares for you. Not a bird falls from the sky. It's that context apart from God's sovereign design and sovereign plan. So he's not saying nothing bad will happen to you and you certainly won't die. But he's saying God will take care of you. Read the Bible in context. And then we understand its intention. Verse 19, by your endurance you will gain your lives. Again, in context, I would never conclude that he means by that our physical life, because in verse 16 he said you might die. Spiritual intent must be what he intends here. I don't know about you, but you read a passage like that too, you go, by your endurance you will gain your lives. If that's spiritual life, salvation by endurance? I'm glad I like endurance sports. No, we look at it in the greater context. He's the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. He's the substitute. Uh, He's clear on justification is only by grace. We learned that in chapter 18 of Luke. But he is talking, I would believe, and I'm in great company on this, about perseverance. You're, You're going to be my martyrs, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be faithful. Perfect? No. As one person said, saving faith does not renounce Jesus. Or true faith perseveres. 
Or persecution is a great tester of genuineness. Now let's keep going. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, now he's finally answering their question. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. There's the sign. Josephus, the non-Christian historian, said that 1.1 million Jews were killed. 97,000 taken captive in this period. That things were so bad that some even cooked their own children for food. So when we read in verse 20, then know that its desolation has come near. It's horrific. Devastatingly so. Verse 21, then, not now, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. In other words, don't, don't come back here. Stay away from Jerusalem. Verse 22, for these are days of vengeance. So we've got desolation, vengeance. These are apocalyptic terms, judgment terms, to fulfill all that is written. This is, this is judgment from God. I, I, I realize that we're living in the same culture in, again, 21st century middle America, and it's been this way for a long time. This isn't normally how we think of Jesus. But make, make no mistake about it, Jesus is saying, because Israel has rejected me, it will be vengeance, it will be desolation, and it will be horrific. Maybe that's a little hard for us to swallow sometimes. All of human history had been aiming toward having Him be recognized as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they're saying, we don't think so. Yahweh, the one true living God, the eternal God, says, this is how it is and this is my son. It's logical for Jesus to say this and call for this. What else would God do? It's not just logical, it's actually righteous. And so I would say, in light of verse 22 and everything before it, at the hands of the Romans in 70 A.D., there were days of vengeance. Judgment from God. If you're new to the Bible, you might say, how could it be from the Romans? I thought God was going to do this. Well, there's already a precedent in the Old Testament of God even using pagan nations to bring judgment upon His own people, upon Israel. This isn't the first time. Isaiah chapter 10 was one I was just looking at um, just yesterday. God at the controls, if you will, using sinful people to do sinful things, but carrying out His vengeance. Doesn't mean Rome was good for doing this. Yikes. There will be a moral to the story, I promise. 
Verse 23 says, alas, for, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, oh, this will be terrible. For there will be great distress upon the earth and, and wrath against this people. Now we know for sure he's talking about the Israelites. Wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, verse 24, and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I mean, we have to come up and at least pause here for for breath and say, it's a terrible, terrible thing. No, it's the most terrible thing of all to have God say, this is my son, listen to him, and for you to say, I don't think so. And that's what's happened here. But what about all these innocent people? Wrong question. They're not innocent. Another sermon for another time, but none of us are. Because none of us have loved God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved our neighbor as ourselves. We haven't done the basic thing that God requires. We're all insurrectionists. We're all attempted government overthrowers. Enemies of the state. But here, Israel, of all people, of all nations, the people of God, and they meet the Lamb. And they say, no, we'll atone for ourselves. Rather interesting when you read the Old Testament and you hear what God says about His law, and He says, you know, you do this, and it will be good. Honor me as God. Keep my statutes, and it will be good. He's fair. Totally fair. But there's warning time and time again, if you don't, there will be destruction. And you, you kind of say, well, it's kind of a catch-22 because, you know, even the Old Testament says we're, we're all sinful, so how can they actually do it? And so here they are in a place where they can't actually keep the law, and God warns, but what are they supposed to do about it? I'll tell you what they're supposed to do about it. Trust in God's provision of the law keeper. The very one who came and said, I came to fulfill the law. The answer is in Jesus. It's all been pointing toward Him. Heavy stuff. Serious stuff. He says, until the, time, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Probably one of two options there as far as what, what does it mean until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled? Well, it could mean until the, till Rome, the Gentile nation, the godless nation, is done wiping you out. That's true. Or he may have in view more what Paul has in view in Romans chapter 11 until God is done focusing on the Gentiles as he's turning his back on the Jews. We know that's theologically true as well. Which one it is here, I'm not exactly sure. But there is an end. Again, God is sovereignly in control. Either way, God determines. Now we transition. Now, I don't know of a single commentator. I don't know of a single Bible teacher. I'm sure there are some. Um, but the, I try to read at least pretty broadly, and uh, no one mainstream, regardless of your end times perspective, um, everyone says, here's a big transition. And now Jesus is going to begin looking toward the ultimate apocalypse. So what he's been talking about is like a foretaste. It's like a type. It's a, it, it, it's a shadow looking forward. And now he begins talking about futuristic kinds of things. 
And so I'm going to take that same approach. If you have an ESV study Bible, I'll just read the note. I guess if you have it, you don't need me to read the note. But in case you don't, um, having warned of the approaching destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus turns now to the more distant future and foretells his second coming. Seems to be what's going on here. Verse 25, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations. So now we're, we're, we're moving beyond persecution of believers. It's now broader. Distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, not just Jerusalem. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now it's cataclysmic in a grander scale. Verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming. Okay, so we're world, Son of Man coming. They see coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So the, the, the rejected, crucified, but resurrected one, he comes uh, with a cloud, power, heavenly, divine, great glory, conqueror, majesty. They were wrong to, to oppose him. Verse 28 then says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Yeah, ultimate redemption, ultimate restoration. Like Romans 8, verse 29, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Okay, messianic kingdom, when he comes to rule and reign in perfect righteousness and he makes every wrong right And everything is restored. There's redemption of everything, not just of individuals. 32, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And now I have page after page after page of notes. And I won't read them to you. Complicated verse, complicated passage. Last time I was going to preach this, I just chose on Saturday nights to preach something else. (laughs) so I'll be honest this one has been on ice for a while this is a complicated passage for for anybody and everybody so how do we understand all this well I think first of all we say again make sure we see disciples 70 AD at least in the first part of it or you'll be confused and a lot of Christians are confused because they read the whole chapter as futuristic But then things seem to shift and he starts talking about things that are more worldwide, cosmic, son of man coming, people will see him coming. And then he says, this generation won't pass. Hmm. I'm super glad, and you should be glad too, that your eternal destiny does not depend on how you interpret the verse. Um, I think Jesus knew what he meant. I think the disciples knew what he meant. I think we get a better understanding the more we read and study the Old Testament and prophetic passages and we see near and far and we see types and shadows. It's at least helpful. But it's still a tough passage. Some think that this generation refers to the disciples who were then alive. Okay, that would be the most 
common way we'd take it. Oh, this generation, the people who were living then. But then they have to say, but here, because he broke it up talking about the parable, now he's back to talking about the 70 AD stuff. Could be. It's nice and neat. I like it. Put a bow on it. I'm not going to go to the cross with it. Could very well be. I like that view. Keeps things quite literal. At least at the beginning. Another perspective would be to see uh, this generation uh, referring to people of a certain quality, of a certain kind, a certain type. And we know that there is precedence for that in the Old Testament. Okay? Sometimes in the Old Testament, this generation is talking about this generation of righteous people, uh, or a kind of people, okay? Righteous people, people who follow God. Uh, or it's used in a negative sense. This generation, talking about ungodly people as a type of people. And it uses generation in that sense, not necessarily people who are all alive at the same time. In fact, Jesus seems to use it that way earlier on when he talks about this generation. And he's not just talking about the people who were alive then and there. He's talking about the Jews. You just keep killing the prophets. This generation is corrupt. The Jewish people are corrupt. Maybe that's, maybe that's what he's getting at. This generation won't pass. The Jewish people won't pass. So some like this view to say, well, there's a future for Israel. It complements Romans chapter 11. Maybe. It's not that clear in this passage. Or the negative, this generation, the kind of people who are unrighteous people, they're not going to pass until all of this happens. And there's judgment at the second coming. Theologically, that's true. There are other views too. I'm not just going to keep giving you views. Some think that all of this is 70 AD. I'm not promoting that view. I I just can't sleep with that view because even though the first part is, all eyes seeing him coming on the clouds, I think there's the view toward the future. But I see why people would have that view. Especially given the fact that in the Old Testament there's a lot of imagery used. And it's not necessarily uh, woodenly literal. And these images are used uh, about cataclysmic, cosmic things that actually happen in a localized way. But I'm not, I, I want to hold that view and I just can't quite do it. That when, when the Romans came, Christ came in judgment, even though he wasn't a Roman. I just can't quite go there. I'm just trying to be honest with you to say, I think Jesus knew what he was talking about. There's a reason why Christians divide over these kinds of issues because some of these things are hard to say or hard to think. And I love it that Jesus says, no one knows the time or the hour. (laughs) I don't know for sure. I do know Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem and it was a terrible, terrible thing as an act of judgment upon Israel and that prefigures what he will come and do one day against all rebels. I know that. The last time I preached the Olivet Discourse, it was in Matthew and I remember the man who said to me afterward, I'm looking forward to next week because I still have questions. 
And I said, we're not doing it next week because I still have questions too. (laughs) So we're going to move on now. Don't divide over this kind of issue. Jesus is coming again. We know that from all kinds of passages. He certainly came in a sense to give a preview against Jerusalem in the form of the Romans. Let's move on. 33, we'll wrap things up. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Just one quick comment about that is, that's the kind of statement only God makes. If you're Old Testament literate, you're like, wow. Jesus is making it clear, this is going to happen. God will take care of you. But this is going to happen, no matter what. Why? Because I say it's going to. Well, that's Isaiah 55 talk. That, 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 that's Yahweh talk. Yeah. Yeah. No mere rabbi would be able to get away with saying something like that. And then 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth very broad see but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man yeah literal escape i don't think so because he already told me he could die Escaping the judgment, escaping the, 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 the condemnation, escaping the wrath. You'll be able to stand before Him. You're ready. The ultimate sense you're ready by trusting in Him like Psalm 2 talks about. By paying homage to Him. Then verse 37, and every day He was teaching in the temple. But at night, He went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to Him in the temple to hear Him. Bottom line, Jesus is coming again. Those who just went to Israel have a little bit of a preview when they see the rubble. Oh, it's cool to see the temple. Wow, this is amazing. Yeah, it's a mess. It's an amazing historical artifact that they've tried to re-piece together with all different kinds of busted up bricks. It's anything but beautiful. They've tried to reassemble it. But it should be a living, ongoing testimony of the fact that God is against those who deny His Son. Look what He did here. And I would be unloving and unkind to say, to not say to you, learn from history Learn from what God did as a shadow, as a type, so that you can be ready when Jesus Christ returns as judge. You don't want Him to be your judge because He'll be fair. He'll give you what you deserve. You want Him to be your Savior. And as Psalm 2 says, the way for Him to be your Savior is to pay homage to Him. Acknowledge Him for who He is. Trust in Him that He's the perfect law keeper. That He's the perfect atonement for law breaking. That He's the resurrected Savior. In other words, 
listen to the Father's voice from heaven that says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what does he say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from religion. Rest from your sin. Rest from your unrighteousness. Because you're going to rest in him, not in yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the fact that you're the God of history, history in the past, history as it's unfolding before our very eyes, and the fact that you are the God of future history is quite amazing. Um, It can be said of no one else, uh, and we're thankful to be able to trust in you because you're an eternal God who has an eternal plan, uh, and that you in Christ are not against us, as we said earlier, but you're for us. There are so many things we don't understand. We are thankful that Jesus did say in Mark 13 that concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. We're thankful that it's going to happen. We're thankful we don't have to be afraid. Uh, We're also thankful for the fact that even when we look at hard passages, we we actually don't know the exact details um, because that's what you've told us in your word as well. Give us a great day. Sustain us this week. Help us to be vigilant, alert, the kind of people who care about things uh, for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand